well, some we've been over and some we've not at all. And uh, I'm going to continue this into Corinthians uh, because he has a great deal to say here to the church and the church is because it was written long ago to the church at Corinth, but uh, preserved for all the churches to consider later on and to be very, very aware of. Now, in Romans, we found, and in a way that I had never really fully understood, that there was a great deal of racism there between the Jews and the Gentiles in the Roman church. And Paul started out with that and continued that theme throughout the book of Romans, getting on to some other issues, but he kept coming back to that because that was such a problem there, and indeed around the world has been to some degree. And we have to realize as we sit here today that as God begins to gather his remnant pretty soon from all over the world, there will be people of many different races, many different cultures, many different languages, and they will need to come together and work together in harmony and in peace and in love. And that is a tall order when you have people coming from divergent areas like that. In, the, in Corinthians, it was uh, a different approach. Here, not so much race. Uh, there were contentions and divisions among them over other issues. Uh, they also were a mixture of many different uh, peoples, but uh, he addresses them from a totally different position. And just as an overall point of view, uh, the church at Corinth was a mess. I don't know how else to put it. It was a mess uh, in many, many different ways. So Paul addresses the spiritual problems there with them. Uh, he tiptoes through in a way between being able to show the kind of love and affection that he would like to and coming as a very corrective uh, situation as well. And he says, it's kind of up to you which way I have to be. <laughs> uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. I can, I can come either way when I come to see you. Uh, you're the one that needs to determine how I'm going to come by your attitude and your approach and so on. So there's a great deal in here. So let's start into the first book of Corinthians today. He followed it up with a second book because some of the things that he said needed to be corrected. They actually corrected, uh, but then they had attitudes towards the ones that the correction had been over and wouldn't accept uh, him back among them. So, uh, first of all, they were enjoying sin, and then they would not be forgiving and repentant. So, they had all kinds of ups and downs spiritually and the things that Paul had to consider in dealing with them. Anyway, he opens it by saying, Paul, called to be an apostle of Emmanuel through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. So, he addresses them as an apostle, uh, establishes who he is. Of course, they knew of him and knew who he was, but in writing this letter, uh, he let them know that he did have authority as an apostle through Christ. 
to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Emmanuel, called to be saints. Now notice he establishes who he is, and then he very quickly establishes who they are. And it is very, very important that he do that, that they might understand and be very aware of who they were, and he spends quite a little time on it before he begins addressing the mess that they had become. Uh, he wanted them to know that they were sanctified in Christ, set aside by Christ. So that gave them a status in the universe that very few have. Uh, today, in this rotten, sick, sinful world, there are very, very few people who have been sanctified by Christ. And you are some of them. So recognize that status. You have been aside, set aside for a very special purpose. And we must recognize that He has done that for us, to us, called us out of this world, and given us His truth and His knowledge. Now what we do with that becomes very, very important because that's the status we hold in God's eyes. Sanctified, set apart for a special use, for a holy use. Called to be saints, or the to be isn't even in there, called saints. Uh, the Catholic Church did not originate the term saints, uh, nor is it limited to those that they might posthumously recognize as saints two or three hundred, four hundred years after they're dead. Uh, anybody who has been called and set aside by God to be part of His church is a saint. So we could call each other that if we so choose. Here's St. Al right here on the front row. St. Brian. <laughs> uh, that, that is, it's a correct name. We probably won't be start saying it uh, that way, but let's understand that's what we are. Uh, it's a very high calling to be a saint of Christ, which means that you're engaged to be married to Him. Uh, having been called and set aside for what? Salvation. But among us, we're set aside to be the very bride of Christ. He's going to marry us. So that's the purpose for which He has made us saints today. With all that in every place call upon the name of Emmanuel, our Lord, both theirs and ours. So he includes not only them in Corinth as saints, but those in other areas as well who had been called out and that were brothers and sisters and saints together, sanctified for God's purposes. So then he says in verse 3, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ or Emmanuel. So, he wants them, or wanted them, to be in the good graces of, the good favor of God. And he says, since he called you out and called you to be saints, that is the status in which you reside, is under the grace of God. So grace and peace he extends to them from God and from Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf, 
for the grace of God which is given you by Emmanuel, the Christ. So he, in his own prayers, gave thanks to God for those that he had called out. So he's bringing uh, good wishes from the Father and the Son, and also sending his own good wishes to them. So you see, he's establishing a relationship with God. He's also establishing a relationship between himself and these people, because he's going to have to be pretty corrective in this book. And correction should always be given in love and in compassion and in kindness, if at all possible. Now, he said it isn't always possible (laughs) later on in the book, and we'll get to that. If it be possible, it should be that way. On the other hand, it may have to come with power. Uh, That is always a possibility. And he did uh, correct a couple of things in here with that power, even by letter. And he says, but if you think that's bad, wait till I come in person, if you don't straighten up, and then you'll see the power that God has given. But he's showing his concern and the concern of God here. Because that's what we have to impart to our children, is it not? You know, they sometimes have to be corrected. But it needs to be in love and in compassion and in kindness, not in anger, not in belligerence. Not in hate, not in animosity. Uh, We don't hate our children, do we? No, we love them. We hold them, we dandle them, we we talk with them, we play with them when they're real little. And then I guess we still play with them when they get big. We want to play ball or something. But in other words, there's a close relationship there. And parents often say, well, this hurts me more than it does you. And the kid doesn't quite believe that. But uh, nonetheless, he doesn't understand that as much as that parent is devoted to its child, it does hurt emotionally to have to bring pain to that child's bottom (laughs) or pain to uh, take privileges away until the child can learn that he'd better have a different attitude. It does hurt. So, he wants to be sure that they understand that they're loved, not hated, not despised, uh, that he was not coming in antagonism, and yet there were things that needed to be done. So, anger does not get you very far. That's why God is not a God of anger. Very forgiving, very loving, very serving, and his anger dissipates in a moment, he says. So whatever the circumstance, God is not one to bear grudges. He's not one to stay angry. He's one to forgive. He's one to forget. He's one to create a loving relationship uh, in every way that he possibly can. And that's the way that Paul is coming to these Corinthians. So he says uh, that in everything, verse 5, you be enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. So he's saying there is a great deal that is there for us that we need to imbibe of. And we need to have uh, the kind of acceptance, the kind of thankfulness for what God has given us. And not despise it in any way. Well, what had God given? 
he had been they had been enriched by him by being brought to repentance uh, by being given his Holy Spirit, which is enriching. Uh, how, how can you be richer? Enrichment, uh, the, the, the root word is rich, of enrichment. We are made rich by the gifts, the love, the kindness uh, of God. So we've been enriched by his Spirit, and in all utterance, the things that we are told and the things that we say, and in all knowledge. So they had been educated to a great degree in the knowledge and the way of God. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. So, Christ's testimony is toward those who are obedient to Him, and He will testify to His Father that they are His beloved, that they are the ones He is engaged to, that they are the ones He wants to love through eternity. So, uh, he's confirming that testimony of Christ that they had been called and made saints. Who shall also confirm you to the end? Now, what did we read earlier in Romans? That he will never forsake us. That he'll be with us always. Uh, We can be secure in that. He'll never leave us. The only question is, will we leave him? So, he will confirm us now as to what we are, and he was confirming through Paul who these Corinthians were, and he says this is going to continue to the end. Never go away. That you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Emmanuel the Christ. Christ has a continuing sacrifice. Whenever we sin, whenever we make mistakes, and we all do, Uh, He is there to forgive and to move on and to have a relationship of love and peace and grace. That's what he wants us to have with him and it's what he wants us to have with each other because that's what he's called us to do and to be. And he warns us many times that if we aren't that way with each other, then we will not be that way with him either. You cannot have a close relationship with God apart from a close relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot have it. Those are the words of Scripture. Christ says, I'm going to treat you just like you treat each other. So, you can't get away from that. You might try to wiggle off it, but you can't do it. Because that's His edict. But He will continue to forgive us, no matter how dastardly we've been, And he already knew some of the horrific sins that were in the Corinthian church. This wasn't just pink toothbrush we're going to be talking about later. This wasn't just uh, a little this or a little of that or something else. This was some truly serious stuff. And he knew that when he wrote this. Because he knew God loved them and would be willing to forgive them until Christ returned. That's the only way any of us will be in the kingdom of God, is that He forgives us up to the point of death or His return, whichever comes first, uh, through His sacrifice, which is a continuing one, and is not withheld, just as we are not to withhold it with each other. Then he says, God is faithful, by whom you were called to the fellowship of His Son, Emmanuel the Christ, our Lord, our Master. So, 
He will be faithful. The only question is, will we? God's faithfulness is unbounded. Sometimes ours has bounds. Sometimes we hold back. Sometimes we do not give what God wants us to give. Uh, So, therefore, he wrote this letter. He says, Now I beseech you, brethren, in verse 10, by the name, that is, by the authority of our Lord Emmanuel the Christ, that you all speak the same thing. That was a hope. That was a wish. That was a request. He beseeched them, or a beseechment is more of a plead, or a pleading. In other words, I know that you're not all speaking the same thing. And therefore, I plead with you that you come to be that way. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Satan's house is divided against itself, and it shall not stand. Christ's house cannot be divided. That's why he beseeches us and pleads with us to all speak the same thing. You have to choose to be unified. It doesn't come automatically. It does not come naturally, humanly, or carnally. The nature of mankind is to divide, to split, to hate, and to have divergent opinions. So, you have to determine, just as he is pleading with them, to determine that they all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions, or schisms, but division is a good word, among you. You should all be close, you should all be unified, there should be no division. We are to be one in Christ. Now, that is his goal and his purpose. Remember, as I said in the Passover sermons, Christ wants us to be together in the same way that he wants to be with his bride. Now, he is going to become one with his bride on the Day of Atonement through marriage. And he wants us as the bride-to-be. It's an engagement period now. It is a trial, a period of time, in which we show him that we will be faithful and true and love him throughout all eternity. And the litmus test that he goes by to determine that is is how the... Bride candidates get along with each other. Because we are designed to be 144,000 joined as one to Him. So He's made it very clear that He wants to be at one with His bride. And He is sitting there today with the Father, watching how those bridal candidates during this engagement period get along with each other. And he will decide, based on that, who will be included and who will not. Didn't he say that in many ways? That I will judge you as you judge each other. I will treat you the way you treat each other. He said it over and over and over again. 
So that is the test of our engagement to marry Christ, is our relationship with other parts of the bride. That's what an engagement is all about. To be sure that the oneness and the unity that is supposed to be there will be there. So he, he pleads with them that they all speak the same in agreement, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Perfectly joined together. Now, is that at oneness or is it not? We're already sanctified. We're already saints. We're blameless before Him through the sacrifice of Christ. He gives us a new start every day, says in Ecclesia or not? Yeah, in uh, Ecclesia. No, um, the Lamentations. Brand new start every day through the sacrifice of Christ who forgives our sins. Do we do the same for each other? Or do we carry our grudges and our hate and our animosity as we see all around us here? We decry that when we see it in others. How do we do when we see it among ourselves? Be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. See things the same way. Understand them the same way. For it has been declared to me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. So after he gives this kind, gentle, loving introduction and encourages them how they ought to be, then he begins to dress the way they are. So, in saying what you ought to be, and then addressing what you are, <clears throat> he is implying there that something needs to change. And as he gets into it, he will show what needs to change. So, he said, I've, I've heard, and he says where the rumor came from, from the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you, that there are difficulties between you, he doesn't uh, define them yet, but he will as he goes on through the book. He'll address quite a few different issues. Now this I say, that every one of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, and I am of Peter, and I of Christ. So they had picked their favorite ministers. We've all seen that back through the decades in Worldwide Church of God where people would pick who they wanted to listen to. Now, if a minister didn't agree with you on something, uh, or in who you wanted to marry, or what you ought to do about this or that or the other thing, uh, and he told you, no, you shouldn't do this, then they would go to another church area and talk to another one, and they would shop for ministers till they found one that would tell them what they wanted to hear. And, of course, they would tell their story their way, in order to get him to agree with them. People aren't always completely honest uh, with themselves. So they were shopping for preachers, uh, to put it in that uh, context. They, they had their favorites. Then he says, is Christ divided? Part of their division was, well, I, I like Paul, or I like Peter, or, well, I'm just of Christ. 
Well, now what's wrong with that? That's included in the negative here, isn't it? That's included in the problem is someone saying, I am of Christ. Now what's wrong with being of Christ? Well, aren't we all of Christ? So how could it possibly be a problem? Ah, there is a rub there. Some decide, I don't need any preacher. I am of Christ alone. I can stand on my own. I don't need a preacher. And there have been a lot since the church broke up who have taken that approach and that opinion. Now, what did Paul tell us in Romans, or to the Romans? He says, no man can come except he be sent. And no man can preach unless he has been sent to preach. And no man can learn unless he has a preacher to teach him. So it's very clear that Christ set the apostles, the evangelists, pastors, there to teach the congregation, and, like it or not, to rule over them and that they were to obey. There in Hebrews. But people take exception to that. And they say, it's just you and me, Lord. I don't need a preacher. So some thought they needed Peter. Some thought they needed Paul. Some thought they needed Apollos to give them what they needed. And others said, I just need Christ. That's all I need. And that's where it became a problem. Because God had sent Paul, and he had sent Peter, and he had sent Apollos to teach them. And some of them didn't want any of them. They just wanted to be in a relationship with Christ by themselves. That cannot be done. If you're set aside to be part of the body of Christ as a potential part of the bride, engaged to Christ, and that's, the, that's where we are right now is an engagement period with Him. You can't do that alone. No man is an island. No man stands alone. So these people that go out there and say, well, I've had it with preachers. I'm just of Christ. I can understand the Bible myself. No, you cannot. If you're off by yourself, you degenerate and deteriorate. Now, you might be able to understand spiritual things. You might be able to read the Bible and understand what it's saying. I'm not saying you can't. We all have minds, and we should be able to do that. But I have seen too many people who were isolated from congregations back when I was a kid, even, before there were local congregations everywhere. And people were trying to make it on their own, and they didn't grow, and they slowly slipped backward and began to do less Sabbath-keeping, to do less of everything that they ought to do and slipping into the world more and more and more. It's inevitable. Unless you're plugged in to what Christ has built, you begin to shrivel and die. That's just the way that it is. I've seen it over and over and over, and I've experienced it. I've been kicked out of the church two or maybe three times now over the years. And when I, or we, my family, were off to ourselves, we slowly began to drift the wrong direction. If you don't have that weekly admonishment, that weekly encouragement, even correction, you begin to drift. That's just the way that it is. And it can't be stopped. 
And you can't defy it. You might think you can. I've seen a lot of people that tried it, and they can't. So if somebody says, well, I'm of Christ, that isn't normally a problem. I am, you are. Are we here primarily to be of Christ? Yes. But the moment we depart from each other and try to worship Christ by ourselves on our own, Paul says that is a problem. That doesn't work. So he included Christ in here in his declaration of a problem. It's one, someone who says, I am just of Christ. Is Christ divided? No. Well, some said, I'm going to follow Peter. Some said, I'm going to follow Paul or Apollos. And some said, I'm going to follow Christ only. That divided them automatically, didn't it? Automatic division. And they were divided. So he says, is Christ divided? How can this be? Was Paul crucified for you? No. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. He says, I'm actually thankful when I look at the Corinthian church and how divided it is that I didn't baptize many of you. Because you got this problem where I'm of Peter or I'm of Paul, and the less I baptize, then maybe there'll be the less that say that I'm of Paul. That's the point he's trying to get across. He didn't want that. Christ doesn't want that. Lest any should say that I have baptized in my own name, or that he was above Christ. Do you believe that that's possible, that someone could say that their own name was higher than that of Christ? Nobody in the church of God would say that, would they? Well, there was somebody preached right here in this congregation some years ago that we have to think higher than Scripture. Said it right in the sermon. Shocked some people, thankfully. You can't think higher than Scripture. Can't begin to. Scripture is from God. But here was this minister who thought his thinking was higher than God's thinking. You can't say it any other way. If you think you're thinking higher than the Bible, then you put yourself above Christ who inspired and caused the Bible to be written. That's what you're doing. So he's putting down that idea. It's not the first time that it's happened. <laughs> it won't be the last either. And I baptized also, he was thinking as he was writing, and I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. So he was, those are the only ones that he could remember. He might have baptized another one or two in that congregation, but he went a lot of places and saw a lot of people, and he didn't remember. Uh, I know I've baptized people in the past that I might not remember either. Now, if I saw them or heard their name, I might remember. But if I think back to Miami or Lakeland or Idaho or California, who did I baptize? I could think of some. I could remember them, but I'd probably forget some too. Because, uh, you know, unless their name is mentioned. Oh, yeah, I did. That happened not too long ago. Said so Daryl baptized me back 40 years ago. And when I heard the name, oh, yeah, I did. But I hadn't thought of them in probably 30 years. So that's... That's what he's addressing here. 
And then he explains in verse 17, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. His primary job was not to go out and recruit uh, repentant people to baptize. Herbert Armstrong thought he was out there to preach the gospel around the world, and then the end would come, and he was mistaken. That wasn't his job. His job was to call and to bring to repentance and baptize many. So he was called to baptize, but Paul was not. Now, Herbert Armstrong was supposed to preach the gospel, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't the final preaching of the gospel that he thought it was, or that we thought it was. So he was he's defining his job here. He said, I wasn't there to baptize you and for you to hold me as beloved because I was the one that dunked you in the water but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. So he says, I'm not there to be a great speaker. I'm not there to uh, impose myself upon you as a great evangelical or some such thing. I was sent here to simply teach you the truth of God. And if it's me, he's saying, then the, Christ, the, the sacrifice and the death of Christ means nothing because you look to me. So he said, don't look to Peter, don't look to Paul, don't look to Apollos, look to Christ and his sacrifice, but don't, at the same time, in looking only to Christ, deny your brethren. And it's just you and me, Lord. Always reminds me of that song, and I've mentioned it before. I walk in the garden when the dew is still on the roses, and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. (coughs) And the joy we share is something that none other has ever known. How in the world could you write such a egomaniacal song? Now, I'm not saying that we can't have a close relationship with Christ and we should walk with Him, talk with Him. But to say nobody's ever known this like I know it, <coughs> need to get over ourselves. I don't know who wrote that, but it's been since David. And I don't think I've ever known anybody who's walked and talked with God the way David did. So maybe something he did with God was something no one ever has known. But it wasn't some Protestant that wrote that sweet song. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But to us which are saved, it is the power of God. Now, where does the power of God come? It comes through the life and then the death and the life of Christ. And that power is exhibited by the Holy Spirit, which comes from those two. So the power of God is in understanding the truth and following it and believing this gospel. 
That's where you get your power spiritually, is from these words in this book. That's what gives us power by the Holy Spirit, which is has to be there for us to even understand. Remember, these apostles had been with Christ for three and a half years, and they were not converted. They had heard a lot. They had understood a little. But they didn't get it. Even up till the day, the, day, the night he was crucified, they still didn't get it. And when they were asked, do you know this man? They said, oh, no, I don't know him. I've never seen him before in my life. Who's he? Denied him. But when the power of the Spirit came, that all changed in Acts 2. Then they had the true understanding and the conversion from God. Now, you can preach to the world till you're blue in the face. We had a radio and television program going round the world to teach people the things of God. And almost everyone ignored it. You think this nation hasn't been witnessed to ahead of its destruction? Yes, it has. That broadcast went out across this land, and you could drive all the way across the nation, and I've done it, and tune it in anywhere you were, any time of day or night. It absolutely blanketed this country. And I remember before Ted started talking about platypuses, Herbert Armstrong being on in the earlier years, going through the book of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and telling us that our nation was going to be destroyed if we didn't repent. He laid it out there. I remember it well, because it scared me <laughs> as a kid and as a young man. So it went out there, but how many listened? Very, very few. It was foolishness. Now, back then, they still considered themselves Christian, but the, but the truth of God sounded like foolishness. What do you mean the law is still in effect? What do you mean we've got to keep the Sabbath? What do you mean Christmas is wrong? And he said that back in those years. I remember hearing it. That's foolishness. Then he says, But to us which are saved, it is the power of God. We are saved. You do realize that, don't you? In spite of all the things that we've had to preach about not once saved, always saved. We are in a saved condition. God, through repentance and baptism, has saved us out of this world for a specific purpose. Sanctified, saved. You set something apart. You're going through your refrigerator. Some things you sanctify by putting on the shelf. Some things you reject by throwing in the garbage. So, He has saved us out of this world, set us apart. We are in a saved condition. Now, we've talked so much about Protestantism and their view of saved, that we may have come to the point that we do not realize that we are saved. We are. He says it right here. You which are saved. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't become unsaved. You know, when you cleaned out the refrigerator, there was something you saved 
that you thought, well, this is still good enough, maybe I'll eat it. So it's saved, right? You come back three days later, you can say, yuck. So you unsave it. So even though we are now saved from the world, saved from the lake of fire, saved by the forgiveness and the mercy of Christ's blood, we can become in an unsaved position by going back on those things that caused us to be saved out of the world. Now, Paul has a lot to say about us not being eternally saved or always saved. And he says he himself could become a castaway. And we know all those scriptures because we had to emphasize them in order to contradict the once saved, always saved view of the Protestants. So maybe we overlook the fact that we are saved, unless and until we get in an unsavable condition, and then we're not, because we can fall away. So he says it. To us which are saved, it is the power of God. So if you didn't think you were saved, this isn't a change in doctrine. This is just recognizing what the book says. We are in a saved condition. You're not out in the world, are you? No, you're saved out from it. And now some of us have even moved out from it to be set aside for a special purpose by God. And we can stay in this condition or we can remove ourselves from it. We can. And then we won't be in a saved condition anymore. If you turn your back on the things God has taught you, and even here in the last 23 years, you are playing with fire because you know that what we've been reading in this book is true. If you let somebody get in your way of that or you let me get in your way of that, you're playing with fire yourself. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. So you have those in the world who think they're wise, who think they're prudent, and he says, I'll make fools of them. Now, he is going to address the fact that there are a lot of people in the church who thought they were wise and prudent above others. And he will reprove them for that. Uh, that's the attitude you're getting in when it's just you and me, Lord, or I'm of Christ. I'm not of Peter or Paul or Cephas or Apollos or anybody. So it's not just the wise and prudent of the world that he will make fools of. He will make fools of us who consider ourselves wise, who consider our judgment better than Christ or others. So he says in verse 20, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? All you have to do is go to Romans 1. We got our modern ideas of Big Bang theories or evolution or all these things. And God just says, look around the earth at what's there. How did it get there? 
None of your stupid theories make any sense whatsoever. Cannot, never have. There had to be somebody to make it. This little microphone here got made by somebody. It didn't just ooze together here on the table. Had to be made. This world didn't get here with all of its closely related symbiotic systems that depend on each other by coming up on the beach as slime. Where did the beach come from? Where did the water come from? Where did the slime come from? The wisdom of God makes foolish the ideas of some of the smartest men that have ever walked the earth who come up with these insane, stupid theories to try to reject God. That's what it's all about, is rejecting God. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. All the smartest people on earth did not know God. Now, you and I meet people that are smarter than us continually. I have no idea how many hundreds or thousands of people I've met over the years who are smarter than I am. Higher IQ, more intelligent, more educated. That was true of the early apostles as well. The people who were really smart and educated says, Come on, where would you get these taxpayers and, and fishermen? They talk like fishermen. They don't even have a nice accent. They're not very bright. What did they have? The Word of God. That's what made the difference. Intelligence means nothing. Nothing. I've seen people who can barely speak be very converted and candidates to be the bride of Christ. Because he set them aside and called them. The world and all its smart doesn't know God. Who are the smartest people on this planet? Go to Silicon Valley, go to different places, the governments of the world, the universities. People a lot smarter than you and me. A whole lot smarter. Probably got double IRQs in some cases. Or almost. I guess you can't, you can't double stupid and get... Well, never mind. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. In a sense, isn't foolishness, isn't preaching foolishness? In a way, if you look at it that way, yeah. Why does somebody have to explain it? But it's the truth. How could the church have ever been built unless somebody was explaining it? How many people sitting in their Methodist, Baptist, wherever they were, would have ever come to the truth from reading the Bible? None. None. I've got commentaries, and there's a plethora of them on the Internet now, of truly intelligent men like Matthew Barnes and Adam Clark and name a bunch of them. There are Bible dictionaries and all kinds of Bible helps. There are people who have memorized the Bible word for word. can just sit down and tell it to you. And they don't have a clue what it's talking about. Not even a clue 
what it means. I read all those Protestant commentaries by those really smart men, and they don't have a clue of the mystery of God, or the plan of God, or the purpose of God, or what true Christianity even is. No clue whatsoever. So by their wisdom, even if they're trying to know God, they can't find Him unless the Spirit of the Father draws them. That puts you in a very, very special category. Recognize it. Be thankful for it. There are very, very few who know what you know. Aren't very many. And are any of them perfect? No, not one. Let's read on. We'll find that out. But it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that do believe. The saving comes through the so-called foolishness of preaching. The understanding, the setting apart, the repentance, the baptism, all come through preaching. Foolish as it sounds that one other human being would stand up and talk to another human being and try to tell them what's what. That's the way God set it up. And He gave certain gifts to do that. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. So the Jews, who claim to be of God, wanted you to come up with a sign that you were of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Gentiles didn't care anything about God or the history of the Hebrews. They wanted to go through the wisdom of the Greeks and the mythologies and all of those things to show truth. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and he still is, and unto the Greeks, foolishness. The coming of Christ, the teaching of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ was to the Greeks foolishness because it didn't match their psychology or their philosophy, mainly their philosophy. Just like it's foolishness to the world who has a philosophy of Big Bang or evolution or whatever else. All right, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Now, is God foolish? No. But he's making a comparison that if the, the, the most foolish thing that God could ever think or do is a whole lot wiser than the wisest thing that man could ever do. There is that much contrast between. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. So whatever might, if God had a weakness, whatever it would be, it would be stronger than the strongest of men. There again, showing the, the great contrast between God and man. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Now we sing this in a song, and we quote it and laugh about ourselves sometime and how weak and base we are. But he's making a point here to this Corinthian church, some of whom thought that they were above the rest, and all they needed was Christ. Or others who thought this preacher or that was better. He says, no, the wisdom of this world is foolishness, and you are not the smart of the world. 
See, understand your calling, he says. That not many mighty and noble are called. Of course, those who wanted to say so could say, well, yeah, but I'm one of them. Uh, But that's vanity and ego in itself. But God has chosen the foolish ones of the world to confound the wise. You and I are the foolish of the world. We are not the smart, the bright, the educated. We're basically the foolish. Uh, the, the church primarily was made up of blue-collar, not white-collar people. And even white-collar people can be pretty dumb. So, he hasn't chosen those who are smart. He would have a problem humbling them. And B, what the foolish of the world, the tax collectors, the fishermen, the average Joe, mechanic, whatever will confound the world. That's the way he set it up. He's chosen the foolish ones of the world to confound the wise. That's why you and I are here. We were the foolish of the world. And we're here to confound the wise of the world. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Not only are we base and not very smart... We were also very weak, given to human nature, to sin, to carnality. Now, he doesn't intend us to stay weak. He intends us to become strong. And that's a process that through his word and his spirit, we become. Are we all completely strong yet? No, we're still weak. We still have our problems, our weaknesses, our sins, our deficiencies, So we should all throw rocks at each other and go home. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised has God chosen, yes, and things which are not, to bring to nothing things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So he called the weak to confound the wise, and that way everybody is weak or confounded. There's nobody that can stand up and say, hey, I'm great. No, because these weak people showed you you were stupid. So the stupid show the stupid, that I mean the wise and the smart, that they're stupid too. Are all the smart people on this planet saving it? Where's it headed? All those smart scientists saving the world? Who's going to save it? Christ and those whom he has called. And nobody else. So no flesh can glory in his presence. But of him are you in Christ, Emmanuel, who of God has made us to wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the eternal. So he sums up this section here by saying it isn't Peter, it isn't Paul, it isn't Apollos, and it isn't your relationship with Jesus himself only. But through His power, through His Spirit, we can work together in unity, without division and without schism, to all come to think and say and have the same judgment and be unified as one in Christ so that we might be qualify to go from engagement to marriage. That's where we are. And that's what He's trying to get across to them. So, the first lesson 
apply to them, and it applies to us, and it applies to every congregation of God around the world, every person in the church of God. Uh, some have joined up with this preacher or that preacher. Some have said, just me and God. None of those work. It is togetherness and unity as the called out ones together in which Christ can be glorified. So there's where our work is cut out.